Well, tonight we're looking at the next episode in the, the life of Elijah, and we're turning to 1 Kings 18 uh, to read this extract. 1 Kings chapter 18, please. 1 Kings 18, verse 17. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have in your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now therefore send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel, and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people didn't answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left the prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us and let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God and I will call upon the name of the Lord and the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it's well spoken. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first for your many and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given them and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they'd made. And at noon Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a God. Either he's musing or he's relieving himself or he's on a journey or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. And they, and they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come near to me. And all the people came near to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took twelve stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar, as great as would contain two seas of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. He said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, 
that I am your servant, that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering, and the wood, and the stones, and the dust, and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. And Elijah said to Ahab, Go up, eat and drink. For there is a sound of the rushing of rain. So Ahab went up to eat and to drink, and Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel. And he bowed himself down on the earth, and he put his face between his knees. And he said to his servant, Go up now, look towards the sea. And he went up and looked and said, There's nothing. He said, Go again, seven times. And at the seventh time he said, Behold, a little cloud like a man's hand is rising from the sea. And he said, Go up, say to Ahab, Prepare your chariot and go down, lest the rain stop you. And in a little while the heavens grew black with clouds and wind, and there was a great rain. And Ahab rode and went to Jezreel, and the hand of the Lord was on Elijah. And he gathered up his garment and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. Amen. May God's word touch our hearts tonight. This is, without any doubt, uh, Elijah's most high drama episode. It could hardly have been more public, and it could hardly have been more impressive. Uh, Arguably, it could be described as being Elijah's uh, finest hour, as he stands completely alone Uh, In front of them, there are combined 850 prophets of both Baal and of Asherah. The entire nation has been congregated around this natural amphitheater uh, on Mount Carmel. An entire nation, as well as these 850, and Elijah stands alone before them, representing God in this great contest. It reminds you a little bit about what uh, Churchill said uh, just before the Battle of Britain, you know, when he said, um, it may well be that if this empire of ours lasts for another thousand years, that people will look back and they will say, and this was their finest hour. Well, you know, we, we could be mistaken for looking at this narrative and saying, you know, this, this is all about Elijah. This is all about Elijah and his finest hour, standing as he does. But actually, this passage is really not so much about Elijah at all. If it was just about Elijah, I mean, it would be a discouragement, actually, for, for most of us. It would be something that was demoralizing. We would look at this, we would match ourselves up against it, and we would say, well, I could never do anything like this. I could never attain, I could never come close to anything in my little life, to anything like this. And it would, be, it would actually be a discouragement. But, but this passage is not about Elijah. You know, we're reminded constantly every time we look at this about the summary 
verses in the New Testament, you know, that talk about Elijah in James chapter 5, where it says, Elijah, he was a man who was just like us. He prayed, and he prayed again. He was exactly like us, with many failings, as we will see in, in the weeks to come, God willing. And so the lessons from this passage that don't point so much to Elijah, but they point to the God of Elijah, are therefore very relevant lessons for us. There are things for us to learn from here. And what we see in particular is something about the greatness of God. The God, in verse 24, in this passage, who is described as the God who answers by fire. And he's central here. It's God that the people eventually fall down before. It's not Elijah. It's God, verse 37, who turns the people's hearts again. It's not Elijah that does that. So we look at him and uh, we see an ordinary man serving an extraordinary God. Now, the, the, there are three kind of lessons that I want to just highlight for us tonight as we try to take the lessons on board and, uh, and help ourselves uh, uh, in, in our daily living uh, from this tremendous episode. We're going to be thinking about the secret, the silence, and the sacrifice. And they will come out uh, in the course of this message. It just helps us kind of hang our thoughts on this. So I'd like to, to speak to you first of, all, first of all about the secret. Now, when I talk about that, I'm really talking about the secret of Elijah's power. I mean, there's no doubt about it. There, there is a power. There is an, an authority here uh, about Elijah. I mean, you see that in the opening verses that we read, actually, uh, at verse 17 and 18. You know, there's no doubt that uh, in this conversation with Ahab that it's Elijah that's calling the shots. It's Elijah that says to him, you know, this is what I want you to do. Here are your instructions to the king. You know, you gather all these prophets and you, you gather the nation. You bring them to Mount Carmel. He gives them his list of instructions and Ahab just complies. Ahab goes along. Elijah is a man of authority, and, and the power of the man comes out in the course of the entire incident that we're looking at tonight. And I think um, that really is summed up in his famous phrase, which is repeated twice over. Uh, first of all, in, in chapter 17, verse 1, and then you see it uh, in this chapter as well, at chapter 18 and verse 15 where he says, the God before whom I stand. You see, he, he wasn't intimidated by Ahab. He, he wasn't kind of overwhelmed by this sense of importance and royalty. For him, the most important issue was the fact that he knew that he stood in the presence of God. He, he pictured himself as like a courtier in the royal courts of heaven, standing before the throne of the God of the universe. He says, the God before whom I am standing. And, and for, for him, that carried so much more weight. And when he grasped that, 
waiting to hear his instructions from God and then to try and carry them out with all the authority that came from the throne of God. You know, that, that carried with Elijah this immense sense of, of authority that he was therefore able to convey. And that is seen here in his conduct and conversation with the king. And we see this again in the New Testament, actually, with, with John the Baptist. And I mention John the Baptist because John the Baptist is mentioned in Luke chapter 1, verse 17, as somebody who was coming in the spirit and in the power of Elijah. The spirit and power of Elijah. And he was exactly the same. He talked down Herod. He stood before Herod fearlessly. And he condemned him. And he, he corrected him. And he was not intimidated. Again, he had this same attitude of standing before the God of heaven. And this is a lesson for, for, for all of us. So easy to feel overwhelmed. So easy to feel inferior. So easy to feel that we don't have anything to say and who am I in the face of all the talking heads and authorities and influences around about us. But to grasp with these men this sense of power. You see, this is the secret. This is part of the secret that Elijah had. The secret of his power was that he, he, he stood in the presence of God. Now, what does that mean actually at a practical level? Well, it's back to what we've been learning recently in the book of Ephesians. Fundamentally, it's prayer. It's prayer. Now, that, that is, again, probably the main issue that is descriptive of the life of Elijah and the secret of his power. You know, James 5 again, Elijah prayed fervently, and Elijah prayed again. He prayed that there would be no rain, and then he prayed again. And look at the way he prays at the end of the chapter where we read today. You know, he says to his servant, go and look out over the sea. He's, he's putting his knees down, he's, his head down between his knees in a description of intensity. And he's persisting in his praying. For seven times he does it, even although there doesn't seem to be an answer. Eventually, there is just the hint of an answer. A cloud which is only the size of a man's hand. It rises up out of the sea. But God is responding, and the power of God is about to be seen because of the persistent prayer of this man of God. And that is also the case in what is happening here in this great contest in Mount Carmel. Basically, everything that happens has to do with the prayer of Elijah. And you get that, don't you, down at verse 36. At the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and he said, O Lord God of Abraham, it's a prayer. And the prayer of Elijah was the secret of his power. Now, we must never think that our prayers, somehow or another, in, in, in persisting with them and in repeating our prayers, that they are somehow or another an attempt to coerce God into doing something that he doesn't want to do. Not at all. We read uh, a parable that the Lord Jesus taught in uh, Luke's Gospel, chapter 11. And we read about 
a man whose friend comes to him at midnight. He says, you know, I have a visitor that's come and I need to show hospitality and I have nothing to give to him. And I'd like you to give me some loaves of bread. And the man shouts out the window and he says, you know, I'm in my bed and the children are all here. Don't make a racket. You're waking them all up. Do I want to get out of my bed and give you that? And he keeps at him. And he says, because, not just because he is his friend does he answer him. But because, and the ESV uses the word impudence, because of the man's impudence, his perseverance and persistence, his audacity to do that, he answers him. And on that basis, Christ drives home his lesson. And he says, you know, remember what God is like. You know, look at yourselves. If you ask your, your father, you know, for bread... Is he going to give you a stone? Surely he won't. Well, think about what God is like. God knows how to give good gifts to you. You don't have to coerce him into anything. But God does want to see reality. He does want to see seriousness. He does want to see sincerity and persistence, yes, and even impudence and audacity in the prayers of his people. Because that is the secret to spiritual success. That is standing in the presence of God. And so we need to ask ourselves again, as we were a couple of Sunday mornings ago, as far as prayer in our own lives, it's the, it's the thing I think that probably the majority of us you know, struggle with most of all. Do we actually believe in prayer? Do we believe that prayer works? Do we believe that it is an important thing in our individual lives and in the life of this church? And if we do believe it, you know, why don't we follow through? It's a little bit, actually, like what Elijah says at verse 21, where he says, you know, if the Lord is God, follow him. Well, if we believe in the importance of prayer, let's pray. And so that is the secret of Elijah's power. Second point. Not just the secret, but the silence. So the nation is gathered. All the prophets are there. By the way, you know, the, the, the Baal and the Asherah uh, refer to the kind of male and the female equivalent of the Baals. The Asherah is the female equivalent. It's a fertility cult. And as part of it, there, had, there was temple prostitution. The whole thing became very corrupt. Uh, that's, that's really what that is signifying when you read both of these. The whole, the whole nation is gathered. There must be thousands upon thousands of people here, round about this mountain, with the 850. And what Elijah does is he lays down the terms of the contest that is about to take place. And the important thing to, to understand here is that what he says is not random. It's not, he just doesn't pick this out of the air. There is something that is very specific about this because it is a challenge to basically what is the essence of Baal worship. You know, let, let's remember that Baal worship, the word Baal means Lord, it means Master. 
And they looked upon the Baals as the masters and the lords of fertility, uh, of the harvest, of the storms, of the weather. That became such an all-encompassing, important issue for, for, for this society. They looked at the, uh, the harvest time and the crops. They looked at their herds. They looked at their flocks. Success and survival, as far as they were concerned, was completely dependent on how well their crops were and how, how, how fertile their herds and their, and their flocks were. And this whole thing, this whole bit about the, the life force and about the energy that came that produced all of this, it was all focused and epitomized in the worship of these things all headed up in the concept of, of Baal worship. And that was why the drought that Elijah first of all prayed for was so significant. It was driving at the very heart of the fact that Baal controlled the rains. No rain for three and a half years. And now the contest is that there is a God who will respond and answer by fire. The storm, the lightning, you know, would fall from heaven. Would Baal be able to do that? And so he's driving at the very heart of what is encapsulated in their understanding of it. Now, I guess a lesson for us from this point of view is that we need to be very careful ourselves that we are, we are not worshipping some sense of energy or, or excitement or something that is vibrant that we feel makes everything come alive. Particularly if we do that with religious clothes. Because that's what they did. You know, this was basically a pagan thing and they dressed it all up so there was an entire mechanism and structure of religion all round about it. And it was state-sponsored. All these prophets and prophetesses, they were, they were catered for at Jezebel's table when the rest of the country was starving. You know, these people were well-fed sponsored by royalty and it was, it was given a religious veneer and we need to guard against that kind of thing now the point that we get, we're getting to is this they, they set up the whole thing they dress the sacrifice they begin to call upon Baal and uh, what happens what happens verse 26 nothing happens it says that there was no voice and that no one answered. Baal, answer us. There was absolute silence. There was, there was nothing at all. No voice was heard. And an entire religious organization and system had been built around silence. It had been built around nothing. And an entire nation that was standing there had been influenced and had been moved and had shifted its position from the true worship of God because of nothing. Absolutely nothing was at the heart of it all. And this is a massive lesson for all of us today. 
We look out upon our world. We listen to the media. We hear everything that's said. We know what people believe and what is emphasized. We see the pursuits and all the messages. They all seem so attractive and they all seem so appealing and they all seem so persuasive. And it's built on nothing. Nothing. We sang earlier on, didn't we? How firm a foundation, you saints of the Lord, is there for your faith in his excellent word. There is nothing anywhere else. It's the message of the book of Ecclesiastes, isn't it? Try this. Try the next thing. Chase the wind. It's all vanity. Totally meaningless. Absolutely empty. There is nothing at all that is in it. There is no substance at all. We cannot overstate this point. As far as the gospel is concerned, there is a voice. There is a message. There is the Word. There is Christ Himself who is the foundation. And everything else is empty. Absolutely empty. You remember the words of Christ to the woman in John 4. Whoever drinks of this water here will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him, they'll never thirst. You remember the indictment that Jeremiah the prophet gave to the people when he said, you know, my people have committed two sins. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and they've carved out for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns, that can never carry any water at all. Empty, meaningless, a total void. And you look at these prophets raving on hour after hour, cutting themselves with their swords and with their lancets after their custom. And you wonder, despite all their ceremony and despite all their enthusiasm and despite all their earnestness, that surely something must be penetrating their minds about the emptiness of all of this. Was there a dawning realization that there was nothing in this at all? We need to just remember this. We we need to be reminded about this. We cannot say it too strongly. The emptiness of this world. The silence of the false prophets. It is still the same today. Let's move on to the the third point. The sacrifice. Because now it's Elijah's turn. Now he does something first of all that is extremely powerful in its um, symbolism. What, What does he do? Well, what he, what he does is this. He starts to rebuild the altar. You see that? Verse 30 and verse 31. Now, what that means is this. He'd chosen a spot on this mountain where people used to worship the true God. They used to do that, but everything was broken down. The stones were all scattered around. It wasn't a functioning altar anymore. All this Baal worship had superseded it all. But there used to be worshippers here. 
And you can just imagine the scene, the people looking on as he takes his time walking around, picking up the various bricks and stones and placing them one on top of another until he has an altar. The old altar has been rebuilt again. The altar that represents the worship of God. Now, there are some very interesting technical points, actually. If you were to read Exodus 20, the last couple of verses of Exodus 20, you would find out there were instructions on how altars were to be built and how they were not to be built. They just had to be crude, rough altars. You couldn't put a tool on it. You couldn't fashion it. You couldn't carve it. You couldn't make it nice. The whole point of the altar was this. I couldn't bring anything that was of my making into the worship of God. You can see the symbolism of that, can't you? The worship of God, I can't bring myself into that and make it all pretty and represent the stuff that I've been creative with. You know, it's all about God. And so he does that. And he he lays the altar on top of it. He He lays the animal, the bull. And the bull is to be, verse 38, a particular type of offering. Leviticus tells us there there were five different types of offerings. This was to be a burnt offering. It's the first one that's mentioned. It's the most ancient of all the different types of offerings. Some offerings were were there just as an act of worship and devotion to God. I heard on good uh, authority just this afternoon that if you were to take a, a decent cow to the market, you know, it would probably... Uh, you would get about a thousand pounds for that today. I would think a bull would be more than that. You know, so you, you just think of a person bringing a bull, you know, and saying, I'm going to offer this to God as my uh, symbol of my gratitude to him and uh, giving away a thousand pounds every time they do it. You know? Sometimes the offerings were to deal with sin. People put their hands on the head of the animal and they confessed their sins. And there was a kind of ceremonial transference of their sin to the animal that, that, that suffered instead of them and died in their place as a substitute. And it's, it's all done very deliberately, the, set, the, the way that this is all set up. And so Elijah, as he prepares his sacrifice, he calls upon the name of the God of heaven to to answer by fire. Now there's not going to be any doubt on the outcome of this contest. You know, he goes out of his way to make it difficult, doesn't he? With the the water that's poured out on it. And maybe some of you are asking, where did they get the water from? I thought there had been a drought for three and a half years. Well, if you go to the end of the chapter, you know that the, the, the cloud rose out of where? Rose out of the sea. Mount Carmel's on the coast. So we've sent the men down to the sea to bring up the barrels of water. Do it again. The whole thing, the drama must have played out over a long period of time as they went up and down the hill getting the water. And um, there's no doubt in the response as, as God's answer comes and, and, and completely consumes 
the sacrifice, but not only the sacrifice, it consumes the stones of the altar itself, it consumes the dust, it consumes the water, and the people have their hearts turned back to God. And there is the realization that the Lord, He is the God. He is God. What, What a message for the people. What a message for the people in Babylon who who received this report to read in their exile because of their sin, to be reminded about this. And what a message for us tonight as well about the importance of the sacrifice. Because this incident actually is pointing us towards Christ who is the ultimate burnt offering and who is the ultimate sacrifice. He is the one man that makes the difference. Not Elijah. Read read Romans 5 and you know where I'm, I'm coming from when I make that quotation in that way. There is one man who does that in his sacrifice when he stands between God and our sin and upon whom the fire fell. The fire you see here, it falls not on the people for their sinfulness. It falls on the sacrifice and the people are turned back to God. I mean, that's the point of the thing. And so that is the case too. As we think about our Lord Jesus Christ, we we, we remember what is said about God and His character in Hebrews chapter 12, that, that our God is a consuming fire. We remember what John the Baptist said in Luke chapter 3 about the Lord Jesus, the greater one who would come after me, when it said, you know, he he will devour um, the chaff with unquenchable fire. And Christ enters into the fire of Calvary, of the hours of darkness, of the unfathomable experience of abandonment by God. And into that, what Mr. Tusk didn't really know what he was talking about, that special place in hell that Christ experienced. When the fire of the unquenchable wrath of God was experienced and he stood between us and our sin and God answers by fire. That's the wonderful message of Calvary, that on him almighty judgment fell that should have sunk a world to hell. And that's what we see here in symbolic form as we think about the God who answers by fire. So let me close by taking us again to Elijah's challenge as we think about these these three things. The challenge, of course, is back there in verse 21. And very interesting, picturesque, language as he addresses the people and as we are addressed tonight by it. So he says to them and he says to us how long will you go limping between two opinions? So easy isn't it to live our lives that way? They were like that. They, they They were limping sometimes towards the service of Baal. And all that that represented. And other days they they limped in the other direction. And they wondered whether actually it was the God of heaven 
And, and they just limped back and forward between. And he says, you know, how long are you going to live your life like that? Just limping along. Never, never amounting to anything. It's very similar, isn't it, to the terminology, same idea, different picture that's used in the book of Revelation and the church of Laodicea. You know, you know you're, you're just lukewarm. You're, you're neither one thing or the other. You're neither hot and you're not cold. You're just in the middle somewhere, limping around. And the challenge that he gives to them is this. You know, if you are convinced that the Lord is actually God, then serve him, stand up for him, live for him. Don't go limping around from one thing to the other all the time, uncertain of where you stand. What a a message that is to all of us. Are we convinced? Are we convinced of the truth of the gospel? the truth of the Lord Jesus and of his word and of prayer the message is if the Lord is God if you believe that then then let's not go limping around let's decide for him let's not hesitate but let's decide for him and live for him and that's the great lesson that comes from this incident lessons from the life of Elijah the secret of his power the silence, and the sacrifice. Lord, thank you for this wonderful passage. We pray that the lessons of it will come to our hearts from this ordinary man who stood in your presence. And Lord, we pray that we might have something of the power of Elijah as we try to represent our Lord Jesus. We pray that your word, all that is of yourself, uh, will just speak to our hearts tonight as we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.